morning, everybody. It is great to be worshiping with uh, everyone today. I'm grateful to be able to have the opportunity to share with you. We are in the middle of our series that we are calling The Anatomy of Love. And we're talking in this series, we've been talking about marriage. We've been talking about just relationships in, in general. And, uh, and I'm thankful that we can talk about such things as a church family together that we can um, wrestle with some of um, some of these kind of difficult topics or topics that can be difficult at times. Um, I mentioned last week that uh, the stats are, have continued that 50% of marriages don't end up making it. And, and that's a stat that's been true for, for decades. And so it's important for us to talk about these types of issues. And I also just want to say thank you to everybody who's been hanging with us and, and sticking with us um, through this because we're, we've, as we're talking about marriage, what we're learning, though, is not applicable to just marriage, though. That, that what we're talking about, you know, the principles that we're, that we're talking about and learning about are things that we can put into practice with virtually any uh, relationship that, that we are in. They're not exclusive just to marriage relationships. And, and last week we talked about the difficult topic of uh, mutual submission. We were talking uh, about what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you weren't here for that message, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it on our YouTube channel or listen to the podcast. But this morning as we continue uh, our series, I want to focus on a question that uh, Angela and I came across when we read a book a, a number of years ago, and it's a book I would highly recommend to anybody who's married, uh, thinking about getting married, know somebody who's married, something like that. But it, the, the book is called Sacred Marriage. Now, I have an older copy of it the, on the screen. That's the the new cover of the book, but it's written by Gary Thomas. And, and Gary Thomas, he poses a question. It's written on the, the very cover of, of the book. And, and it's really, this is the, the first kind of sermon point that I wanted to share this morning. And he asked the question, he says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than it is to make us happy. And I love this question because it really uh, offers a different perspective. It offers a, a different way of viewing the marriage relationship than how we are accustomed to, to hearing about it, whether it's through, whether through uh, uh, Hollywood and movies and, and books. Like we often have this, this super romanticized version of what marriage is going to be and what marriage should be like. And, and he asked the question, all right, what, what if happiness is not the ultimate goal of marriage, but but what if holiness is becoming more like Jesus? And, and to, to a degree, yeah, I, we obviously all want a happy marriage. There, there's nothing wrong with that. We want our, our marriages to be happy and fulfilling. We want to uh, love being with our, our spouse. We want to get along where we feel heard and valued and cherished. And we want a, a marriage where our needs are being met and we can meet the needs of our spouse as well, where we look forward to being at home with one another. And, and those things are all good, and we should pursue those things. We, we should pursue happiness and joy in our marriages. But if we're not careful, we can make happiness or our own happiness or happiness in our marriage the ultimate goal, the, the thing in our marriage that we are striving after. And, and in fact, if, if, if we aren't careful, it's very easy for us to make an idol out of happiness in our relationships, happiness in in our marriages. And, and when, when you hear the, the word idol, there, a couple different things may come to mind. You, you might think of uh, when, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and, and God was giving him the Ten Commandments and, and they melted down, all the Israelites, they melted down their gold and they created a golden calf. 
Like, and they made this idol that they were worshiping as, as God was giving the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. Or, or maybe you think about in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones is in the temple and has this, this gold idol that he comes and, and takes and ends up running out of the temple, you know, uh, at, and that. And, and while, yes, there are, like, physical idols such as the, the golden calf or, or as the, the movie prop in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, an idol really is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Any, anything that we elevate to a higher place than where, where God is. And, and in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller gives a, a great definition of what an idol is. And, and he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. In essence, an idol is anything that takes the place of God as the most important focus and priority in our lives. And, and as you read through your Bible, you're going to notice, especially in the Old Testament, the theme of idolatry is one that is repeated often. And, and in fact, it's not just in the Old Testament, too. In the New Testament, we read about idolatry. Jesus talks about it and addresses idolatry as well. And, and I could share dozens of passages with you that talk about idols and talk about I idolatry. I'm going to share just a few. First John 5, 21 John writes, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Leviticus 19.4, Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Isaiah 44.9, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Like, like idols even make God's top ten list. When, when God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, the second commandment was, you shall have no, make for yourself no graven image. You're not going to have any idols. And, and what's so ironic about it is, as God was giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, the Israelites were actually breaking that second commandment at that very moment where they were creating an idol for themselves to worship. But, but as, I, as I stated earlier, it's easy for us to create idols in our lives. We, we can create idols out of, out of our children. Out of, out of our job, out of, out of our, our reputation, our, our marriages. We, the, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of happiness can become an idol in our lives. And, and again, if, we don't, if we're not careful, it is easy to make those things, to make something like happiness in our marriage an idol, where we make that the ultimate goal of, of where we are in our marriage relationship. And, 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 and if that's the case, if we start to make an idol out of happiness, it, it makes it very easy for us to say, all right, well, if you don't make me happy and we no longer find ourselves happy in our marriage, it's, it's easy to justify, well, then we need to get out of this marriage. I need to find someone who will make me happy. And I want to read to you a, a passage from Sacred, Sacred Marriage. It's just a, two short paragraphs that Gary Thomas writes where he talks kind of about this, this idea. He says, I believe that much of the dissatisfaction we experience in marriage comes from expecting too much from it. I have a rather outdated computer, a 486, and I don't even know what a 486 is. So that's how long ago that was. So I know there are some things that I simply can't do with it. There's just not enough memory or processing power to run certain programs or combine certain tasks. It's not that I have a bad computer, it's just that I can't reasonably expect more from it than it has the power to give. In the same way, some of us ask too much of marriage. 
We want to get the largest portion of our life's fulfillment from our relationship with our spouse. That's asking too much. Yes, without a doubt, there should be moments of happiness, meaning, and general sense of fulfillment. But my wife can't be God. And I was created with a spirit that craves God. Anything less than God, and I will feel an ache. And if you remember the the definition that Tim Keller gave about an idol, one of the things he said was, uh, uh, anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give. Anything that we seek, something else to give that only God has the ability to give. And I, and I agree with what Dr. Thomas says in this passage, that we often look for the largest portion of our fulfillment to come from our marriage. We look to our spouse, we look to our husband, we look to our wives to, to provide happiness, to provide joy in our, in our lives. And, and, and often we're asking our spouse to do something, our spouse to fulfill something that they can't fulfill that they can't do. Now, now obviously, like, I, I want to go out of my way. I want to try and make Angela happy. I want to try to meet her needs and, and fulfill her. But if she's looking to me to be her source of, of fulfillment, if, if she's looking to me to be her true source of happiness, she's going to be sorely disappointed because I won't, I won't always be able to live up to those expectations. As much as I strive to, as much as I, I want to be that for her, she would be asking something of me that I'm not capable of doing. It, it would be kind of like me asking me to dunk a basketball. Like, I, I'm... Who's laughing at that? Like, I, I, I'm five, seven and a half on a good day. And, and like, I, I could train. Like, I could try. I could lose weight. I could work on my vertical. You know, like, I, I, could, I could practice for hours. And I could, I could give it my best. I could really try... But at the end of the day, if you're looking to me to dunk a basketball, it's just not going to happen. Like, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'll, I'll give it my best, but it's just not something that I am capable of, of doing. And, and so like, this kind of sounds like, all right, this is a downer of a message. I don't know if any of you ever, like, watched Mad TV, like, in the 90s. They had a recurring uh, sketch that was called Lowered Expectations, you know, <laughs> and and, you know, it, it was meant as a joke, but, all right, you know, maybe you have to kind of lower the bar a little bit. You know, lower some of your expectations that, that you have. And, and while I'm not saying, like, obviously we should have some expectations of our spouse. We, we, absolutely, we absolutely should, but we also have to be sober-minded about it. We can't have expectations of our spouse that, that they can't fulfill. We need to temper some of those expectations, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's healthy, for us to take a look at things and make sure we're viewing them through a correct lens. And, and so I want, I, want to, I want to reevaluate, I want to rethink about that question that Gary Thomas posed. That what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? Like what if the main purpose of marriage is not that I'm going to be happy all the time, as much as we would love that? You know, what, what, what if the main purpose of marriage is not for us to have this over-romanticized idea of what, of what married life should be like. But what if God designed marriage? What if God's plan for marriage was not happiness as the ultimate end, but our own holiness? What if God designed marriage for us to become more like God, for us to become better image bearers of who He is? And, and so, so what do we do with this? What, what do we do with that question? 
you know, it, it's one thing for us to acknowledge that, all right, my spouse is not going to be able to fulfill every single one of my needs. My spouse is not going to make me happy all the time. Like, it's one thing to acknowledge that and have an understanding of that. But, but what do we do with the fact that maybe God's ultimate plan for marriage is not my, is not my happiness? Now, obviously, God wants us to be happy. You know, does he want us to be happy? Absolutely. Just like any parent, you know, we want our children to be happy. But, but happiness is not the ultimate, the ultimate goal. What, what God desires more than anything else is not our happiness, but wholeness for us to become more like him. Being pure like God, a true and genuine reflection of who Jesus is. And, and I would argue that one of the ways that God does this, one of the ways that, that, that God makes this happen in our lives is through our spouse, through our relationship that we have with, with our spouse. And, and specifically, those things that make your spouse difficult to live with are the very things that God uses to, 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 to create that holiness in, inside of you. And, and that might sound crazy. It, it might sound backwards and, and ridiculous to think, all right, the things that drive me nuts about my spouse are the very things that God wants to use to, to shape me to be a better reflection of who he is. But remember, like the kingdom of God is, is an upside-down kingdom. His kingdom is very different from the way the, the kingdom of this world works. And, and so stick with me just as, as we talk about this this morning, about, about marriage, about relationship and Christ-likeness, and, and ultimately what God's plan was for marriage from the very beginning. Like over the, over the last couple of weeks, you've heard me reiterate that the marriage was not our idea. Marriage was something that God designed. It was his plan. It was his idea from, from the very beginning. So, I mean, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, God had a plan for what marriage could and should be. And so if you read Genesis chapter 1, we, we read the, the creation account about how God created, you know, the, the, the world and, and, and everything. The refrain that is said over and over after God creates is that it was good. You, God created, created the light and it was good. God separated the, the sea from the land and it was good. God created the trees and the plants and the shrubs and he said that it was good. And, and the animals and the stars and the humans and, 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 and all, all of Genesis chapter 1 culminates in Genesis 1.31, where it says God, God looked at all that he created, and he declares that it was very good. But then we come to Genesis chapter 2. And, and in Genesis 2, we, we get kind of the detailed account about how God created Adam, how he created Eve, and, and placed Adam in, in the Garden of Eden to, to tend to the garden, to care for it. And this is the first time that God looks at something he created and said that it was not good. That it was not good. And so in Genesis chapter 2... Uh, starting, excuse me, in verse 18, the Lord, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Like Adam was alone in the garden. He was all by himself and he needed someone to spend his life with, that God created us to be relational beings, that we need, we need relationship with, with others. We need fellowship. We need connection. We need community. We need closeness with other people. And so it goes on in, in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature was its name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Like Eve was created by taking something out of Adam, and God brought Eve to Adam. Now, now if you're paying attention in the passage, we hear a descriptor that is used twice to describe who Eve was, and it's the word helper. Now, about a month or two ago, I, I began listening to Marty Solomon's Bema podcast, and, and, and I began at, at the very beginning. In, in the second episode of, of the podcast, Marty shares something that I had I'd never heard before, that, that just totally made complete sense to me, was, was fascinating to me. And he was teaching about what the Hebrew word for helper is. He said the, the Hebrew word for, for helper is etzer konegdo. And etzer, meaning help, konegdo, meaning to stand against or to oppose. Like quite literally, helper is the help that opposes, the help that stands against. And, and that sounds kind of like a paradox, doesn't it? Like we, we don't often think of, of a help being something that's oppositional, that, that opposes. Like my, my spouse is the help that opposes me, the help that stands against me at, at times. And, and doesn't that seem to fly in the face of everything that we think about when it comes to a healthy marriage or healthy relationship? I, I remember when, when Angel and I were, were newly married, you know, we had these ideas that we were just going to be perfect partners for one another. That we, we would see eye to eye on most anything, on most everything. We were going to get along all the time. Like we would be there to lift up and encourage one another. We would never tear each other down. That I was going to become more like her. She was going to become more like me. And we were just going to have just this, this great union together. But God says from the very beginning that our spouse is going to be the help that opposes. The help that stands against us. Like that, that, that Angela is going to be that help that stands against me at times. Ladies, your husband is going to be the help that opposes you at times. And this, feel, this feels uncomfortable. This feels awkward in a way. And, and, and Marty kind of gave a, an illustration I want to share with you right now about two pieces of wood. And he said that the two pieces of wood, if you lean them up against one another in the shape of a pyramid, I just gave myself a splinter. Ouch. If, if you lean them up against one another... They're, they're supporting each other right now in, in this moment. They are standing against one another. But they can, they're only standing upright like this because there's tension in, in the middle of this. There, there are opposing forces that are coming against one another. And if you remove that opposing force, it's going to fall. That we, we need that, that opposing force. We need that tension there to keep it standing. Ah, oh, man, that really hurt. Um, sorry, that, that we need those oppositional forces there in order to stand. In the way that they are coming against one another, they're actually supporting each other at the same time. Like, we, we support one another. We support our spouse. We support each other in our relationships by opposing. Now, that, that doesn't mean that opposing and standing against means being oppositional. Like, that, there's, there's a difference. Like, there, there's nothing good that comes from, from nagging constantly. There, there's no good that comes from domineering and steamrolling your spouse. There, there's, there's no good that comes from being a jerk and being obstinate. 
Like there's being oppositional, but then there's also being the help that opposes. And, and the heart behind what God designed marriage to be is one, one that's beautiful. God, God said, all right, marriage is going to be a place where there is tension, where there's a good tension, a healthy tension that's there. And in fact, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The tension can be a good thing. Tension can be a, a good thing. And again, this also sounds and feels very counterintuitive. That most of the time, we try to avoid tension at all costs. We, we like to avoid conflict. We, we, we want to minimize any kind of tension, anything that makes us uncomfortable. We, we try to stay away from those things. We don't like conflict. We don't like tension. But God, in His infinite wisdom, He knew He created marriage knowing that there was going to be tension in it. Knowing that tension can be a good thing. And, and, and let me explain what, what I mean by that. That I, I don't know how many of you have ever read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. I, it's it's, it's a, an extremely like famous, powerful piece of writing that, that Dr. King, he had, he'd been arrested in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 during, uh, for his participation in the anti-segregation protests that were going on. And while he was in jail, he wrote this famous letter. And the letter was, was a response because there was a number of white clergy that were encouraging African Americans not to participate in, in the protest, not to participate in, uh, uh, in, in the, in the sit-ins and, and those types of things where they, they were urging, the, these white clergy were, were urging African Americans to, to pump the brakes, slow down a little bit, give it time. Be patient. Don't try to push and, and agitate things like they were doing. And, and in the letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King, he writes his response to these white clergy members that were saying, all right, just slow down a little bit. And, and in, in, in this letter contains the, the famous line that he said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere. And if you, if you read his letter, and I would encourage everyone to do so, it's not very long, I, I want to read to you just a, a short passage from it that talks about this idea of healthy tension. He writes, So why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? And you are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seems, it, excuse me, it seeks so to, dra to dramatize, dramatize the, uh, the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess to you that I'm not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. And so, that's, a, that's such a key phrase right there. He said, there is a constructive nonviolent tension that is key for growth. Growth cannot take place without it. That if there is no tension, things will stay exactly as they always have been. Complacency sets in. Things will not grow, they'll not improve, they will not get any better unless there is some sort of, some sort of tension, something that stirs the pot a little bit. And this idea of, of tension, opposing forces that keep these two boards from standing up, 
Again, if we remove that tension, they're going to fall. The tension that's there is actually a good thing. And, and there's, there's tension, there's stress in relationships all the time. And, and some of that is, can be toxic. Like we've all experienced that from, from time to time. We've all experienced that before where there is a, a toxic tension. There, there's a negative, what Dr. King calls a violent tension that wreaks havoc in, in a relationship. But there's also a tension, there's also a stress that happens in a relationship that's actually productive, that's actually helpful if we're willing to lean into it. If we're, if we're willing to, to be a part of the process. And, and let me share with you what I mean by that. And, and the next point, if you're taking notes here, is that God uses my spouse to make me more like him. God uses Angela in my life to make me a better reflection of who Jesus is. As Dr. King stated in his letter, tension is necessary for growth. And, and that's, what, that's what a true partnership in marriage should bring. Like, God, God wants us to use that tension if we allow him to. Like, he wants us to use those times where we oppose one another, where, where we're rubbing up against one another, where, where things aren't just smooth sailing all the time in order to make us better people, in order to refine me, to make me more like Jesus. Like, there are times, and, and I don't like it all the time, where Angel will, will speak honestly. She'll tell me the truth about something, even if it's something I don't want to hear. And sometimes I bristle that, you know, tension comes into the room when we have those types of conversations. And I may not want to hear the truth, but she does it because it's what's in my best interest. She has my best interest in mind. She wants me to become the best version of me that I can be. To be, a be, to, to be more like Jesus in, in the way I, I, I pastor our church. To be more like Jesus in the way I father our children. In the way that, that, I'm, that I uh, love her as, as a husband. And so even though I may not like the tension, even though I might not like those times where, where it seems like we're opposing one another, where we're standing against one another, it's precisely in those moments that if I'm willing to embrace it, that change can actually, productive change can actually begin. It can actually start to happen, and it goes both ways. This isn't just, just a female thing. Like, this is what happens in any relationship, that, that when there is tension like this, we, it's actually an opportunity for growth if we lean into it, if we're willing to participate in it. I mean, think, think, of, think of like sandpaper or a sanding block in, in a way. I just I made a, a table and some benches at, a, at our house, and, and one of the things that I had to do is after cutting each of the pieces of wood, I had to make sure that I sanded them down so I don't get a splinter like I just did. Um, you know, like there's places where the, the wood was very rough, where there's splinters on the end where, where I made the cuts, and so I had to use that sandpaper to rub back and forth, back and forth, over and over again in order to smooth out those rough patches in order to remove those splinters. And in, in the end, each piece of wood that I sanded has a smooth feel to it. It looks better. It feels better. Like in, and this is true in, in any relationship, but also in marriage, that, that in some ways, your spouse is kind of like that sandpaper that rubs up against you. And, and when it rubs on your skin, that doesn't feel so good. But it's actually necessary to smooth out some of those rough places in our life to remove some of those splinters that we have. That God uses people around you. God uses people that maybe annoy you, that maybe frustrate you at times to kind of sand off some of those rough edges in, in your life. 
Like the guy at work that's constantly clicking his pen, who's bouncing, who's bouncing his knee incessantly, who when he's talking, he slams his hand down on the table to make his point. Like, like God will use people like that to teach you patience, to teach you about extending grace and forgiveness to those around you if we're willing to participate. God will use your spouse to teach you humility. They're recognizing, all right, I don't know it all. I don't have it all together. I'm not as good as I think I really am. And God wants to use my wife to stand out, smooth off some of those rough edges that I have, to make me more like Jesus in, in those moments. I, I read once that when you love someone who annoys you, you're kind of lowering your, your estimation of yourself and you end up exalting your brother or sister in the Lord. Like the, the tension, the opposition that we find in marriage, that we find in relationships, exposes pride in our lives. Something that we have to deal with. It, it allows us to experience humility and, and a recognition that all right, I do have areas I need to grow, that I need to improve, I need to get better at. And if we, if we lean into it, if we choose to participate in it. Now, the, the thing about it is we can resist tension. I, I, like I mentioned earlier, like we, we oftentimes, we like to avoid tension. We like to avoid conflict, anything that feels uncomfortable. But if we resist the tension in our marriages, if, if we resist the tension in our relationships, it only ends up leading to complacency. I, I want to read one more portion from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And he says, I've been gravely disappointed by the white moderate. I've also reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace with the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. He goes on to say, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from, from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepts his unjust plight to a substantive, substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. What, what, what Dr. King is saying there, he, he says, all right, if we ignore the tension that's there, If we ignore those things that, that feel uncomfortable at times, when we ignore those things and, and, and try to avoid and, and, and resist those tensions that are there, complacency sets in. We don't grow. We don't change. We don't, we don't further ourselves. We don't become who God created us to be. We, we need an outside force often to propel us to change. And if you're married, that outside force, like who knows you better than your spouse? That outside force that agitator, the one that opposes, that causes tension, is your spouse often. And I would say from experience, 
those aspects of, of your marriage, those aspects of, of your relationships that drive you nuts are actually opportunities to demonstrate Jesus, to grow into a, a truer and more genuine disciple of his. Proverbs 17.27 says that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Like the implication of this verse is that you have two pieces of iron and it, and it would be impossible for either one of these blades to become sharp without the other. That left to their own, they're just going to become dull, they're going to become useless, but once they become in contact with one another, once those two blades start rubbing against each other, once the, once the sparks begin to fly, then both swords, bo both pieces of iron, actually become sharper in the process. But it takes a rubbing. It takes, it takes uncomfortable conversations. It takes a tension that, it, that is there that will actually propel both of those blades to actually become sharper. It's not just one sharpening the other. No, they both become better when they're rubbing up against one another when that tension is there. And so I want to close with this final thought here this morning. And I shared it at the, in each week of this series so far. It's this final idea that love is a choice. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. Like We, we, don't, ha we don't have to embrace the process of growing. We don't have to look at our spouse and the other people that we're in relationship with as an opportunity for us to grow in love and in grace. Like in, in the end, we have to choose to participate in the process. We, we, have to, we have to make a conscious decision. Yes, I am going to. I'm going to seek. I'm going to grow. Like in, in the end, we have to choose to participate. We can lean into that tension or we can avoid it. We can embrace the tension that's there those difficult times, those difficult conversations in marriage. And I can grow from it or I can avoid it. I can become stubborn. I can become obstinate. I can, I can resist the tension that relationships bring. But if we do, we're only ending up hurting ourselves and hurting our spouse in the process. We're not going to become sharper without going through the process, without, without, without rubbing up against one another. But if we're willing to make the choice to love, if we're willing to make the choice to participate in that, of recognizing no, this, this tension that is there, those times where, where your spouse is driving you insane, that it's actually an opportunity. God, what is it you want to show me? What is it you want to do in my life right now that is going to help me be a better disciple of you, that's going to help me be a better reflection of who you are? If we're willing to, to participate in that, to make the choice to, to demonstrate Jesus in the way that we respond to conflict, the way we respond to tension. We're going to grow as individuals. We're going to grow as couples. And, and ultimately, we're going to grow to become more like Jesus. That, that's, our, that's our goal. That's what we want to do. We want to be a better reflection of who he is. And so if you would, would you bow your heads? I want to pray for us right now. But Lord, I, I'm so grateful for you, Lord. I'm so grateful for the gift that marriage is. You've, you've called us and you've, you've told us, Lord, that, that we are to love our spouses as you loved us. And there's times where that it's difficult. There's times where, where it's hard, where we find it uncomfortable, Lord, where, where we have tough conversations. And God, I, I pray for the, the marriages here, Lord, the, the, those times where 
where we do feel that tension, where we do feel like we're coming against one another, where, where, there feels, where it feels stressful and uncomfortable, Lord, that, that we would lean into those moments, Lord. We wouldn't try to avoid them. We wouldn't try to rationalize them. But we'd say, all right, God, what is it you want to do in me through this? God, what, what is it you want to do in, in, in our relationship? How do you want me to be a better reflection of who you are? So, God, I, I, I pray that we would not become complacent, that we would be okay, recognizing that, that there is a healthy tension that can happen, a healthy tension that can take place in our marriages and in our relationships. It's not something to avoid. It's not something that means we've, we've failed as a couple. It means we're human. That we're doing the hard work that it takes to, to take two very different people and put them under one roof and to make a life together, make a family together. God, that we would recognize what it is that you want to do in and through us. The, the pathway of least resistance rarely leads to true growth and true change. Anything worth doing, anything worthwhile is uphill, it's hard. So God, I pray that you would help us to embrace the tension, embrace the difficulty, embrace the times where maybe we, we just want to walk away. God, that you would do that, that revealing work inside each one of us in our hearts, Lord. We love you. God, we're so grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're, we're going to prepare to take communion this morning. I